0: Father in heaven, we pray that by your only by only by your grace that you would give us faith to make us well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. So glad truly just so glad to see all of you here today on a home football Sunday no less really proud of you but just really just a delight it just lifts my heart I just mean this sincerely it lifts my heart so much to have you and to see you uh, worshiping the Lord here this morning now some of you uh, will remember and some of you will have heard the 1968 Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell classic Motown single You know what I'm talking about Ain't nothing like the real thing right Oh, that was such a good song. It's a smooth song, right? Just, just, just want, just, just feel good when you hear that song, and nothing like the real thing. Um, incidentally, a few years ago, that song was remade by Beyonce and Justin Timberlake, whose performance ironically proved the point. Um, The lyrics of this song uh, sing of dissatisfied long-distance lovers who are resigned to just listening, uh, just just um, holding a photograph, right? Because there ain't nothing like the real thing. That's that's the song, but it is the title that I'm interested in. It's the title that actually speaks a, a profound theological and existential truth. There ain't nothing like. The real thing. We're all looking for the real thing and there ain't nothing like it, whatever it may be. The real deal that will uh, quench our soul's thirst for purpose, for meaning, for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for peace. Now, I don't mean that that we're always uh, consciously obsessed with this search. In fact, it is uh, just so intrinsic, so normal and basic to our lives as to be mundane and subconscious. Though we typically leave no stone unturned. We look to our vocations and our families and our hobbies and our sports teams. We look to virtues or to vices. We look to the amounts that we give. We look to the amounts that we have we look to controlling things or to achieving things we look to those things and countless other things to provide for us a level of satisfaction of mental security of purpose in short we we rely on those things to tell us who we are to provide for us an identity that frankly they were never really meant to provide we may not know instinctively exactly what the real thing is, but we do know that there ain't nothing like it. And so if we don't have it, then we keep making other things try to be it. Now, I don't know if, if anything immediately comes to mind for you, uh, something in your life that tells you who you are consciously or unconsciously. Think that I've told you before that for me, I mean, there's lots of things, but but the two sort of main things for me are are my role as priest and uh, the approval of others. Now, uh, those are both wonderful things, but they are lousy things around which to shape a satisfying identity. Because you know, what if I mess up? What if I preach a dud sermon? What if I miss somebody at the hospital? What if I do something that makes people upset? Who am I then? Well, in our reading from 2 Kings, we have really one of my very favorite Old Testament passages. It is the story of Naaman. He was the Aramean general. General Naaman was a big deal. General Naaman was the most important man in the most important army in the most important country in the entire world at the time he was a leader of leaders he was a conqueror of nations he was a mighty warrior a man of strength he was a man of vision and intelligence of power and military genius and he was a man who had the ear and the trust and even the admiration of the world's most powerful king Understandably, Naaman believed himself to be a very important man. But Naaman had a problem. And it was a problem that stood to undermine his greatness. It was a problem that Naaman, for all of his wealth and his wisdom and his influence, could not solve himself. Naaman... Had leprosy and as you may know leprosy was a, a sort of lump title or description uh, for what they called a variety of different skin diseases but it uh, the, the main symptom of, of, of that of leprosy was that it caused this deformity of your skin and your limbs and so it was it was so Uh, it was considered to be so serious that the typical remedy for someone uh, with leprosy was forced quarantine, total isolation from society, away from work, away from worship in that very religious culture, even away from your own family until it cleared up. But it usually did not because they did not have the medicines that we have today. And even, even if... Someone of his elite status was not forced into quarantine. The mighty Naaman could not function as a general. He could not operate in his identity. And when the thing that tells you who you are, that you, the thing that tells you that you are a really big deal gets taken away from you, when the thing that you have staked your life on being the real thing turns out not to be the real thing, then that creates a sort of, who am I, a personal existential crisis. I don't know if you've experienced a a crisis like that before. Many of you probably have. Who am I if I'm not this? There's, There's actually a real sweetness to the fact that the one who tells him about the prophet in Israel is his wife's slave girl. She was a young Israelite slave girl who had been abducted. She'd been kidnapped when Naaman led an army through the northern part of Israel called Samaria. It is certain Naaman's army had destroyed everything that the girl had ever known. Taken it all away from her. It is likely that she had witnessed terrible acts of violence against her own people and, and maybe against her own family under his command. And yet she is not resentful. She is not even reserved. She seems eager to help him. And to see him well, if only, she says, if only my Lord was with the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. A gospel note is struck as Naaman receives this word of hope and this word of grace from an, an unexpected source. As this girl offers not just forgiveness to the man who was rightfully her enemy, but blessing. Blessing. Now, I would think it's unlikely that this little girl had Naaman's regular attention for anything. But he was in a crisis. He was so desperate for healing, so desperate to regain a sense of himself, that at the mere word of this little slave girl, he loaded up a caravan with fabulous riches and headed south to Israel. And of course, where does he go? He goes to the palace of the king of Israel. Sort of a vassal king to the king of Aram. But he goes to the palace of the king because he's important. That's where a man like him should be served. And the Israelite king is confused. He's even fearful that he's being set up. Nothing in the luxuries of the palace can provide Naaman what he's after. But the prophet sends, prophet Elisha sends word. Send Naaman to me, so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So that he may know that there is a God who speaks to his people. And so they fire up the caravan again, and they head out in great pomp and importance. And they make their way to Elisha's probably very unimpressive house and elisha does not even come to the door he sends another servant who says oh sorry but the prophet uh, says that you should go just wash in the jordan river seven times and then you'll be made well Naaman is not used to being treated this way. He is important. He is used to people making a big fuss about him. He wanted the ceremony. He wanted the magic show. He expected to have to do something difficult or to pay an exorbitant price because he could. He's important. He's General Naaman didn't have time to go jump in some muddy river seven times. just beneath his station. I mean the Jordan River is pretty unimpressive. For all the press that it gets, it's really unimpressive. It's got nothing on the St. John's. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's got nothing on Julington Creek. <laughs> what good could this little Jordan River possibly do for a man like him? If I wanted to jump in a river, I could have done that back at home, he says. Because Naaman is clinging to his identity as a rich and powerful general. He feels insulted by the lowliness and the simplicity of this offer of healing. It can't be that simple. In fact, it shouldn't be that simple. And he storms off. It seems he would rather have leprosy than to give such silliness a try. I want to just pause here for a minute and say that I do not think that this story is about how God can heal leprosy or really any physical ailment. He can. He does in his own time sometimes. But this is much more a story about how God cares so much about us that he will use anything and everything to get our attention. Even hard things, gross things, sad things, if it, will be, if it will be what gets us into a relationship with him. And when he does use those things to get our attention, he may very well attack the hollow, shaky identities that we have created for ourselves, so that we may learn to have a rich, full, unshakable identity in him. Naaman, not quite there yet. Not, Not quite ready to give up the dream of his own importance. And he storms off. And who runs after him? To convince him to give it a try? His servants. Did you notice this is the third time in just a few verses that a servant has pointed the great general towards healing. The king of Aram could not. The king of Israel could not. But along the way it is the powerless, the meek, the humble who are steering Naaman towards the real thing. And in a fit of common sense, Naaman finally concedes. He submits the words of the ones who were given to serve him. And he dips himself in the muddy Jordan seven times. And I want you to think about this. To do that, to dip himself in the river, he would have had to remove his armor and his medals. And to take off everything that made him look the part. And he would have finally had to expose the secret. The problem. The leprosy that was ravaging his body. And there is... Very strong baptismal imagery in this story as Naaman immersed himself seven times in the Jordan River according to the word of the man of God. For there in the waters of the river Jordan, Naaman was not simply cured of leprosy. He seems also to be cured of his pride. The humiliation of his disease and the simplicity of his healing are God's grace. To him, and as we are told that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, we are reminded of Jesus's call to us to have faith like a child. See, Naaman is not just healed; Naaman is converted. He has set aside the hard and glorious armor of a general, and he found underneath the real thing he found the sure foundation he found the rock on which to stake his life and he says now i know now i know that there is no god in all the earth except in israel he found the real thing and we know here's how here's how we know that he is healed on the inside Not just the outside, but he's healed on the inside. Because he goes back to Elisha, who finally does give him an audience this time, and he says to the prophet Elisha, please accept this gift from your servant. The mighty general has become a generous servant. Now, if you were to read on, you would see that Elisha does not accept the gift because grace is free. Grace is free. And you know what? That can be a hang-up for us, too. I mean, because we're, we're important. <laughs> we, we might have a hard time hearing that salvation comes through the sacrifice of another. That Jesus died for our sins so that we don't have to. That, that we don't earn our favor with God. That, that is a gift. And all we have to do is believe. And in fact, we'll come to see that that belief, in fact, also is a gift. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's holding us accountable. I mean, like, really, like who's, if it's just a gift and it doesn't matter what we've done, then who's going to keep us in line? The goal of God is not to keep us in line, it's to keep us in relationship. And in fact, the truth is, the relationship's going to do more to keep us in line than accountability ever will. But it's the relationship that matters. It's the relationship. It is the real thing. There ain't nothing like it. Such is the lavish, generous grace of God that He has done everything to draw us to Himself. He's the real thing that can never be taken away. Many of you know from Facebook that uh, I lost a dear friend about a week ago. So not in the church. He's a, a member of my workout group, and just somebody that I really cared about. And um, and yesterday we did what we do, know how to do. We got together to grieve by working out. A uh, hundred and fifteen of us got together to honor this man. And his wife was there, not not to work out, but his wife and his daughters were there, and, and, um, and just to be there to to see us honor their husband and dad. and It was, it was amazing. And, and of course his wife is, is terribly sad, but she is not lost. She is grieving, but she is not destroyed because her husband was not her foundation. Together, she and her husband sought the real thing. And when he was taken away, she was still with Jesus. And she said to me yesterday, she said that that she takes such comfort in um, well, she said she takes such comfort in worship because as she when she worships, she's close to her husband, who is worshiping. But she said that that she takes comfort in knowing that that her husband is with Jesus and Jesus is with her because she has the real thing. that you would think, that would just rock her world. And yes, she is so sad. But she is not lost. Because Jesus is with her. That is the real thing. That is what I want to build our foundation on. So what are we putting our trust in? What are we trying to make the real thing in our lives? Whether for the first time or whether again and again and again, let us give our hearts to Christ, who is the real thing. Amen.